Today on The Lab Report, we're going to talk about commensal bacteria and dysbiosis. Yeah, what are all those commensal bacteria doing down there? I have no idea. I, I assume they're just out. hanging out. Yeah. You know what else we're going to do today? What? We're going to announce some big news. Really? Yeah. Big news? Yeah. Do I know this big news? Uh, you do work for Genova, right? Yeah, I think so. Then you should know the big news. Okay, maybe you can fill me in. Stay tuned. The world of medicine can be challenging. Clinicians and patients are always looking for more options, more effective treatments, and in the end, more answers. Functional and integrative medicine focuses on addressing root causes of disease. Here at Genova Diagnostics, we've watched this field evolve and grow for over 35 years. We've not only adapted, we've led. Join us as we talk about functional medicine, laboratory testing, and optimizing health. Welcome to the Lab Report. Hello. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Lab Report. Episode three. We are still here. We still have things that we can talk about. My name is Michael Chapman. And I'm Patty Devers, and we're here on behalf of Genova Diagnostics. Thank you to Genova for giving us the microphones and the platform. That's pretty cool. It is very cool. We're going to bring on some smart people. We're going to talk about dysbiosis today. We are. There's some big news we're going to we're going to share that a little bit later. We will. Yeah. Guess what, Michael? What? I have some questions for you. Okay. Go for what it. What organ of the body produces 75% of your neurotransmitters and contains most of your immune system? Uh, I know this one, the gut. Right. Well, what organ of the body houses a genome 100 times larger than the human genome? The gut. Right. Okay, smarty pants. What organ of the body has a metabolic activity greater than the liver? I don't know. The gut? It is the gut. You know what else is in the gut? What? Commensal bacteria. Bugs. Lots of bugs. Bugs are in your gut. Mm -hmm. What are they doing? That's a great question. We're going to kind of dive into that a little bit today. But you know what? What's an interesting factoid? What? You know what the word commensal means? No, I don't, actually. I'm serious, I don't. No, really? It's because most people don't speak Latin anymore. Ah, it's a shame. That being said, commensal comes from the Latin com, uh-huh. which means together, and mensalis means table. So it's coming to the table. That's pretty cool. Isn't that cool? Yeah. I mean, you could see where that would relate to what is going on in your GI tract. Very true. All these bugs that are sort of interacting. Aww. They're not just producing things. They're not just making gas. They're interacting. They're you know, facilitating relationships with each other. Keeping us healthy. And keeping us healthy. Or some causing of them. disease. Right. And we're going to get into all that. We are. So first, when we're talking about commensal bacteria, I guess the question I have is, like, what is a commensal bacteria? We get this question periodically on the phone. What is a commensal bacteria? What does that mean? Mm-hmm. You, already, you gave the definition, which was great. Thank you. But uh, what what is the difference between commensal bacteria and maybe some of the other bugs that are in your gut? Yeah, there's commensal bacteria, which, like you just outlined, work together to keep us healthy, and there's a lot of metabolic processes. There's also pathogens, pathogenic bacteria, which are directly associated with causing disease. With commensal bacteria, there are some associations with disease, but they're not exactly causative. Yeah, the way so that's different. Yeah, I tend to think of it as, you know, commensal bacteria aren't pathogens, and that's kind of the exception. Like, it, I don't know that it's even fair to say that they're they're not beneficial necessarily. Mm-hmm. We know that some of them might be more beneficial than others, given the clinical associations that we've seen in the literature or inverse relationships, but. Uh, for the most part, they're bacteria that are somewhat symbiotic or in 
a, a, nor, a relatively normal amount in most of our GI tracts, and they're not directly causing any sort of problems. They can maybe at higher levels have clinical associations, as you suggested, but uh, aside from that, they're, um, it's not even fair to say non-participatory. Wow. Yeah. I tried to enunciate that very well, too. Mm -hmm. But they're absolutely doing things. They're having interactions. More and more research to come, I'm sure, on what what they're doing. But as far as we know, it's mostly in their clinical associations that that we're looking at, and they're not direct pathogens or even potentially pathogenic bacteria or opportunistic, as we sometimes call them. That begs a question, though. What? The term dysbiosis, right? So it's kind of when commensal bacteria are out of balance. Yeah. Dysbiosis is, is kind of an interesting term also because it's a very broad term. And, it's, and people define it different ways depending on what you read. That's true. And we throw that word around we a do. lot. And, you know, one definition that I remember is dysbiosis is a change in the gut flora that's associated with signs and symptoms. But there's also people who define it as a change in the floor as compared to that person's baseline. Yeah. So does it have to necessarily be associated with disease? You know, that's even more broad. That's even more vague. It's essentially saying your gut microbiome is different today than it was a week ago. And so that's dysbiosis, even without symptoms, Right. even without any sort of health consequences. So it begs the question, well, is that to be treated? Is that, what do you do with that information? So I think part of, getting to the bottom of the microbiome and its clinical significance and its clinical utility and evaluation is going to be, what are the big players? What are the types of dysbiosis? What are the patterns of dysbiosis associated with what clinical symptoms and what presentations? Right. I also think we should define a couple of terms. The difference between microbiota and Uh microbiome. Okay. Right. So we often think of the microbiota as the actual bug, and they use the word microbiome to describe the DNA of the bacteria. However, some people also use the term microbiome as the entire environment in the gut. That's what I tend to use. Yeah. I tend to use That's microbiome as not not even just the bacteria, but all the bacteria, the, the yeast, yeah. the, the viruses, mm-hmm. all of those things that are naturally occurring in people. Yes, I said viruses that are naturally occurring in uh, people's GI tracts. And you know, the microbiome can change so easily based on what you eat, what medicines you take, where you live, who you live with. Yeah, that one's always really interesting. It is. Who you live with changing your microbiome. I always just wonder about that. Like, what was my microbiome like before I had my family? (laughs) (laughs) And like, how is it different now? I'm sure it's probably different for the better because, you know, my daughter has never been on antibiotics Mm -hmm. and she's probably got fairly decent microbiome diversity going on you know as kids they're always putting you know just dirt in their mouths and and just being exposed to a lot of different microbes that's right so it's i don't know maybe it's helped me out in a way i'm sure but with that there's a lot to learn from the commensal bacteria and on the gi effects we use pcr Mm -hmm. to measure levels of select targets of commensal bacteria yeah which is another interesting concept of you know there are thousands and thousands of organisms and Genova chose just select groupings of them. Yeah. And that's one of the things about PCR is you're, you're somewhat limited right? because if you want to measure everything from, from a PCR analysis, 
you're going to have to have a probe for each one of those. So how do you pick? How did right. how did Genova pick the 24 that they're assessing? I think it came down to some clinical associations that were in the literature. Remember, we've been doing this a very long time. And so at the time of choosing these particular probes, there were some clinical associations with them. And since that time, the Human Microbiome Project has really blown this whole thing up in the sense of... Not in a bad way. No, in a great way. Right. In a great way. But the bigger point, I think, there is that, you know, when we measure these 24 targets, it's a small snapshot of a ridiculously much larger picture, as you can imagine. Yeah. And we're looking at it really just to get a feel for what might be going on there. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of those bugs, as you said, there's clinical associations with, um, we did an internal data analysis to look at our own patient samples that were coming in mm-hmm. and their survey results. And we're able to use about 170 some thousand results to figure out even more clinical associations with these bacteria. You know, some of them are high in certain conditions. Some of them are low in other conditions. Gives you a little bit more insight. And, you know, the other thing is these 24 bacteria are not the rare ones. They're they're the 24 commensal bacteria that are present in most of our GI tracts. What's also important to note, based on what you just said, Michael, uh-huh. is that when Genova analyzes our data and we make clinical associations, it's a little bit more meaningful because when you go through literature, I mean, you've read all these articles, Michael, and you go through uh, literature. Not all of them. There's, mm, there's a lot of might microbiome. might have missed one or two. Right. But people measure these all dif- with all different technologies and all different patient populations. So we make, you know, judgments based on literature of clinical associations. But when Genova puts out clinical associations, it's based on hundreds of thousands of people who have done the exact same test with the exact same methodology. So yeah. it's a bit more meaningful. Yeah, that's and that's one of the hard things about the literature is you're going to have, you know, one research article is going to have a clinical association for high levels of Bacteroides bacteria, mm-hmm. and then you find the inverse in another paper. Right. And there's a lot of times there's there's disagreement between the research articles themselves. And if you backtrack that, that can be due to different methodologies that they're running. That can be due to different healthy cohorts that were used, male versus female, you know, just geographic location. All those things can play a role and probably helps to explain why there is a lot of disagreement with the clinical associations of individual bacteria and even whole groups of bacteria. Right. And there are hundreds of thousands of articles that come out every year on the commensal bacteria. It's hard to stay on top of all it those is. articles. We were just talking about that earlier. It's, you know, how do you stay on top of, if you have any tips on how to stay on top of the literature, <laughs> email podcast at gdx.net. That would be really, really helpful. But the way Genova uses commensal bacteria and that commensal bacteria page is like Michael said, we do significant data analysis looking for clinical associations. We also took that information and used it on specific graphic representations on the GI effects, right? Like relative abundance as compared to a healthy cohort. Right. Um, The commensal balance graphic, which in essence places your patient as it compares to a healthy versus non-healthy Right. Cohort of patients yeah. with dysbiosis. Yeah. Ultimately, you have to start coming up with pattern analysis and data right. analysis. And the more that you understand which of the bacteria contribute to certain clinical diseases, then higher levels of those as compared to other bacteria, you start, you can see you start to develop a little bit of a mathematical equation to understand what's more likely to be balanced as compared to not balanced. 
Right. And then, of course, you have to run that back and validate and, and test and make sure it's it's working and that it's able to separate healthy individuals from people with clinical conditions. It's a sticky wicket, though, because we talk on the phone all the time. And every day, clinicians, you know, have patients that want to know, oh, my gosh, my fusobacterium is high. Is that bad? Do right. I need to treat that? And we're always trying to pull people back yeah. and not focus on one particular bacteria. We're looking at the entire pattern here. Right. We want to pull people back. And that's the value of the, those two graphics on the, the front page right. is because we know that it's not just about one bacteria or even one group of bacteria. These things are all interrelated. The microbiome is all interrelated. So you have to, you have to take a step deeper and look at the patterning. That's where we're giving insight into that commensal balance graphic, the relative abundance graphic, to try to read a little bit deeper into what clinically you need to pay attention to. Right. And one of our segments today on the show is getting to know a Genovian. And we're going to talk to Yay. Christine Stubbe, Christine Stubbe works with us in medical affairs. And we call her the queen of all things poop and bugs. Right? Do we? She, I do. I've she never called her that. loves bugs. She does love bugs. And she is kind of the product line specialist for GI effects. So it might be a good person to, to have come on. She actually recently did a webinar for us as well on how to interpret and understand at a deeper level the commensal bacteria. Um, so since we're talking about this, we thought it'd be a really great time to bring Dr. Stubbe on board. Hi, Christine. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Hi, Hi. Christine. Hi, Michael. Good Hi, to Patty. See you. Good to see you, too. We're glad you're here, Christine. I'm glad you to know, be here. Just before you got here, I referred to you as the queen of all things poop and bugs. How do you feel about <laughs> she that? She did say that. I did. Um, I'm honored. Oh, see, I told you, Michael. <laughs> well, we know you very well. We're all pretty tight friends. But why don't you tell everyone out in podcast land a little bit about your background and what you do here at Genova? Sure. Uh, well, I'm a naturopathic doctor. Another one. <laughs> Another one. There's more of us. Outnumbered. You can never have too many. Okay. Uh, I graduated in 2009, so 10-year anniversary. Woohoo! Uh, after I graduated, I did a three-year residency at Yellowstone Naturopathic Clinic doing family practice. And then I also worked at Frontier Cancer Center doing an integrative oncology residency. Uh, after that, I came to Genova to become a medical education specialist, and I've been here for six and a half years now. I'm super interested in the GI testing, hence my name that you guys gave me. <laughs> That's right. Well, and you know, you're also the GI product line specialist. So maybe it's best just since we've been talking about commensal bacteria and the GI effects, maybe just give us a, a quick run through of how you look at the 24 commensal bacteria when you're going over a report and how you speak to it. Yeah. So page three is synthesized and the the graphics on the first page the commensal balance chart and the relative abundance chart are algorithm based to synthesize all 24 commensal bacteria so sometimes patients or uh, clinicians get to that page and they um, get a little bit overwhelmed what are all these organisms i don't know what to do some are high some are low so we synthesize that information for you to tell you are they in balance are they out of balance are they overabundant? Is there not enough? 
So that's the synthesis. But then on page three, there's some select organisms that I find interesting that I'll look at the individual levels, like the supplementable ones. Lactobacillus and bifidobacterium are common probiotics. And so if those are really low, then you might think about supplementing or getting them through fermented foods. Um, There's other interesting ones as well, which I did cover on the webinar. Nice plug. <laughs> yeah, so Very well received. On the recently recorded webinar, you talked a lot, you spent a good time about the latest literature on the microbiome. I mean, what is the overarching concept you think clinicians should really focus on when thinking about the microbiome and, and the commensal bacteria? Is there something that stands out? Yeah, it's not good to focus on one individually because they don't act in isolation. It's a community. So you want to look at the bigger picture. You kind of want to take a step back and not hone in on one organism being problematic. We also want to look at other biomarkers on the test too. So these organisms have functions in the body. They produce things. And so you want to look at all the findings on the test, look at the big picture, not just hone in. Yeah, Michael and I were just talking about that in the sense that all of these bacteria do so many metabolic functions. And I know in your webinar, and you and I have spoken about the metabolomics of the commensals. Mm -hmm. Can you speak a little bit to the prebiotic, postbiotic, probiotic concepts? Yeah, so prebiotics are used by bacteria and then they go on to create things like short-chain fatty acids. So a short-chain fatty acid is a postbiotic metabolite and the bacteria as a whole produce over a thousand metabolites that have been identified. They're They're still probably more to be identified. So they do a lot in the body. Yeah. They, They have a lot of functions. Is there a particular prebiotic that you have been looking at a little bit more in depth in the literature, something that the literature has shown to be a little bit more balancing, or you think a, a broad range of prebiotics in your diet, or, or how do you go about getting those on board for a patient? That's a great question. So we like variety. The microbiome should be uh, full of variety. So you want to have a lot of diversity of organisms because each bacteria does a different job and you want to have a large pool of organisms that all do different things to ultimately result in what the body needs. And so because all organisms rely on different substrates to feed them, you want to have a variety of food that you're feeding them. So there's not one prebiotic in particular, you want a variety of plant foods and a variety of fibers. With that in follow-up, the question we get all the time on the phone is, what probiotic do I give? And you and I have talked about this, the seriousness of a probiotic. Mm -hmm. Yes. Some clinicians treat probiotics as a medication. So you're giving a live organism and a lot of the literature studies specific strains for specific conditions. So there are online websites that you can look at to see, you know, if your patient has a specific condition, if you would consider giving a specific strain. So it's more you're thinking about dosing it for therapeutic reasons 
So that's something to be thinking about as far as which probiotic. Fermented foods are full of probiotics, Mm -hmm. and traditionally that's how humans have gotten them over time is by eating fermented food. Interesting. Okay. They're also immunomodulatory too, right, in Mm -hmm. general? Yeah. That whole concept, I think, is really, really, really fascinating because in a probiotic, you're only giving a couple organisms. It's a really small amount of bacteria compared to what is available and what's already there in your gut. And, you know, when you think about prebiotics, we're talking ultimately about a diverse diet, which then influences and creates a diverse microbiome. You know, we talk about all these different diets, ketogenic or things like that, but the idea of a a microbiome diversity diet, you know, which at the end of the day is probably something more akin to a rotation diet or, or just something that has a lot of different types of foods to encourage diversity. And I mm-hmm. think that's a, I don't know, it's just a fascinating part of it for me. Yeah, I agree. And even in the literature, when even clinicians ask us on the phone, what's something I can do to increase my bacteroidetes or what's something I can do to decrease my fusobacterium? In all of your literature diving for that webinar, what are some things that you think we can glean from that? The literature is really mixed. (laughs) So there are specific things that are shown to be associated with higher levels of a certain bacteria or lower levels of a certain bacteria. But what we don't know is if you give that particular substance, it might impact the level of that organism and it might, it'll probably impact the levels of many other organisms. And is that good? Is that bad? Right, we don't right. ultimately know that answer. Which is the whole concept of, you know, it all works together. Like you connected. said earlier. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Mm-hmm. Well, what do you think is important about enterotypes? A lot of the literature focuses on enterotypes, big groups, big phyla of bacteria and the ways that they shift. What what do you think we can glean from that literature? You mentioned that the literature is mixed, and I'm assuming your answer is probably going to be similar here, but is there something to glean? Yeah, I think our human brains like to organize information into categories to make it easier to understand. And so there is an attempt at this. When you have large data sets, you try to, to find patterns. And so with the enterotypes, they found clustering of bacteria, so bacteria that kind of like to trend together, that like to hang out together. And there were three enterotypes that were identified. And this was published, I think it was a 2011 Nature article. And it's been referred to a lot by other published articles, hence the controversial nature of it over time. But the three enterotypes were Bacteroides, Prevotella, and Ruminococcus. So those were the predominant organisms in those particular enterotypes, but they weren't the only organisms. Like I said, they they have friends. They all kind of trend together. And so it it's not always reproducible, which is why it's being refuted by other researchers. And so the search continues for, okay, how do we compartmentalize or characterize and organize these bugs so we can better understand them? Right now on our GIFX test, we have them organized by phyla. So that's just simply putting them into their taxonomic 
grouping, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're all functionally grouped together. So the search continues. Yeah. I have another question that's maybe a little bit off topic, but I've gotten this periodically is if you have a patient that for good reason needs to go on a broad spectrum antibiotic, what's the best way to encourage diversity after the antibiotic use and how long do you think it takes to get that diversity back? That's a good question. There's some papers that talk about it taking up to two years to get that diversity back and for the microbiome to restore to its original state. In some cases, it doesn't get restored to its original state. Wow. I'd say the the best strategy is some people do probiotics during an antibiotic regimen just to make sure there's a presence of beneficial bacteria that are going to have a beneficial impact on the mucosal lining as well as the immune system of the GI tract. And so, yes, an antibiotic can kill the probiotic, but if you space it out at different times, then at least you're getting some of the good guys in there to have a good beneficial impact. And then it just kind of goes back to the whole food diversity conversation. Make sure you're supplying the bacteria that live there with enough food that they like to eat. So a lot of plant foods. Back to that microbiome diverse diet that we were just talking about. Exactly. Yeah. Well, this has been really interesting and thanks for joining us uh, and allowing us to pepper you with a few questions here and there. And uh, I do encourage everyone to watch Christine's webinar on the website, gdx.net. Yeah. Understanding the clinical significance of the commensal bacteria. It was very well received and there's a ridiculous amount of great information in there. Yeah, absolutely. So check that out and uh, we'll talk to you again soon, Stubby. All right. Thank you, Yay. guys. So that was kind of interesting. It, it makes me wonder uh, what the other team members, if they have a, a particular f- favorite I'm sure they commensal do. bacteria. We all do. What do you think? You just, you just, let's just call them. That's let's what see. I do. Let's start with Donna. Donna's our, our newest member of the team here. Let's just, let's just give her a call and see what she has to say. Hello. Hi, Donna. This is uh, Michael Chapman. And Patty, hi. I think you're familiar with us. We just had a quick question for you. Um, What is your favorite commensal bacteria on the GIFX? Which one? Oh, my goodness. All of them. All of them. What? You don't have one that stands out that you think is the... Just the They're grooviest. Like children, how can you have this one? <laughs> <laughs> all of them. Okay. All right. That's fair enough. Good answer. Fair enough. Good answer. All right. Well, thanks, Donna. We'll talk to you later. All right. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Awesome. Hey, let's try Steven. See yeah. what his favorite is. Okay, cool. Hello. Hey, Steven. Hi, Steven. It's Michael. And Patty. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Michael and Patty. Yeah. Hi. What a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> All right, quick question for you. Do you have, yeah. what, what's your favorite commensal bacteria on the GIFX and why? I love Acomentia mucinophilia. Wow. Because, because it loves mucus and it helps to clear mucus. So it's a good guy. Good, oh, that's a great answer. Good answer. Well, nice. sorry for interrupting. Thanks for your time. Thanks for the input, dude. Oh, anytime, you guys. <laughs> we'll talk again soon, I hope. Yep. Right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, I think this has been kind of yeah. interesting. Let's, uh, let's call Warren. Yes. I wonder if he has a, a thought on this. Downtown. Hey, Warren, Michael Chapman. Hi, Warren. How are you doing? It's Patty and Michael. Hey, guys. What's up? I have a quick question for you. 
Do you have a favorite bacteria, commensal bacteria, on the GIFX? And if so, why? Which one? It's got to be Acromantia, right? Wow. wow. I mean, That's what Stephen said, too. That's a popular answer. Anything that, that uh, stimulates the production of mucus, I think, is just, uh, you know, why not? <laughs> why not great answer great answer nice all right sorry to interrupt thanks for your time warren that's all right later bye. bye you know what i just realized what we didn't even ask christine this question when she was on with us oh we should call her yeah we need to call her here hello stuby hey stuby quick hey. question for you so, okay. what is your favorite commensal bacteria on the GIFX, and why? Ooh, I have to pick just one? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, I pick Fecalobacterium prosnipsi. Deep cut. One, because what? it sounds cool. <laughs> it does. It does. Uh, That's important. Yes. Two, it is anti-inflammatory. Hmm. And three, it's the main butyrate producer. Oh, interesting. Butyrate's important. Way to go way out there and just... Yeah, just deep cut. That, grab one. That was, that's, that's a good one. helpful. Thanks, Christine. Thank you. Thanks, Christine. <laughs> Thank you. Do you like sandwiches? Not really. Oh. No, I don't. That is shocking. Hmm. <laughs> Not any type of sandwich? None. Wow. Wow. Mm -hmm. What about like a meatball sub? Is no. That, that's that not even a sandwich. Gross. Who... That's a... What about like a Reuben? Uh, actually, you got me there. <laughs> oh, we tapped into something. There we go. Some really strong feelings there we about go. sandwiches here. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, I forgot about the Reuben. See, it's the end of the day. I'm forgetful. Yep. I can't say intelligent things. Never. I need to go yeah. home. Never sleep on the Reuben. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Mm. Thank you. Which kind of Reuben, though? There's pastrami, then there's corned beef. You gotta I think one. you got to go pastrami. Do you? I do. Oh. Oh. No, corned beef. Wow. Get out of my life, Christine. <laughs> you invited of... me on the podcast. <laughs> That's right. She didn't want to pick up the phone. She's working you're, very hard. You're supposed to be nice to your guests. That's um, right, Michael. How dare I you? I didn't get that memo. What a horrible uh, Well, it, the guest of, is always right. It's good cop, bad cop, you know? Mm. <laughs> it's pastrami cop, corned beef cop. Man. <laughs> All right. We'll call you again later. Okay. Right. Bye. 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 Well, that was kind of interesting. It was. Acromantia has a lot of fans. Apparently, it's a popular bug. It's a popular bug. Has a good PR agent, perhaps. <laughs> hey, that makes me think. What What about you? What's your favorite commensal bacteria? I'm going to go with Methanobrevibacter smithii. That's what I was going to say. Really? Why? 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 Because it produces methane. Yeah. Highly associated with SIBO. Right. Any methanogen can slow transit time. Slows transit time. So when you see it elevated, my first question usually is... Does constipation. The, does the patient have constipation? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And we're learning more and more about methane and methane production. As you mentioned, it slows transit time. But the other thing that we're learning about it is that it may have some sort of impact on the immune system. Right. So it's not necessarily a bad thing. It could actually be a good thing. Yeah, well, it's one of those things, is everything in moderation, perhaps, or right. everything in balance? Balance. balance. Mm. But uh, with some of our internal data analysis was showing that there was an inverse association between the inflammatory markers and levels of methanobrevibacter smithii, or at least uh, when, when we looked at the GI effects and SIBO tests together, 
the higher the methane production, it seemed there was an inverse correlation to the inflammatory markers. And what else? You remember? There's also a correlation with blastocystis. Right, right. Which may not be unrelated. Mm-hmm. It could be that the inflammatory markers being low allow for an environment that allows things like blastocystis to uh, to thrive. So you see how it's all so interconnected. There. It's really interesting. I think that's another example of Genova leading the charge on this information because that's something that we discovered solely by doing our own data analysis and uh, information that hopefully we will be talking about publication in the future. Great. You know what else is exciting? What else is exciting? The big news. Oh, the big news. We have right. big news coming. We need to get to the big news. Right. Um, I have an idea. What? Let's do question of the day. Okay. I have a question. What is it? What's the big news? What if I told you that Genova has taken all of its data analysis. I'm on the edge of my seat. I know. And we've created algorithms and scoring systems, uh-huh. and we're about to roll out a huge upgrade to the GI effects. That sounds pretty freaking amazing. We're about to take the clinical utility of the GI effects to a whole new level. Wow. Where can I learn more about this upgrade? On this podcast. Really? Why don't we do it next episode? Okay, that sounds good. Great. The content provided in the lab report is for educational purposes only. It is not meant to be misconstrued as medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Did you know that, Patty? I did, and it's really educational. Yes. That's how I took it. Did you like my NPR voice? I did. Next time on The Lab Report, we talk about the big upgrade to the GIFX, and we try to get Patty's computer to not make noise. Next time on The Lab Report, we talk about the big upgrade to the GI effects. Scoring systems, algorithms, therapeutic layers, it's graphics. It's really cool. It is really cool. It'll be a fun time. Yeah. You've been listening to The Lab Report. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast, rate us, and leave us a review. To learn more about Genova Diagnostics, visit our website at gdx.net. There you'll find information on specific testing, educational resources, and how to connect with our show. Call us at 1-800-522-4762 or email us at podcast at gdx.net. 